Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Uncensored Women of the World podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Silva. Pleasure to have you here tuning in. If you are returning here, welcome back. So happy that you're listening. And if you're new here, welcome. Thanks for tuning in today. I had the pleasure in this episode of uh, sitting down and speaking with Joa McGee, founder of Insight Myanmar podcast in Better Burma. Insight Myanmar is a podcast that speaks to activists, artists, and leaders and stands by the Burmese people in their quest for democracy and freedom. Better Burma is a U.S.-based nonprofit dedicated to advancing a free, peaceful, and prosperous Burma by promoting democratic values and raising awareness about the ongoing crisis through their media platforms, offering emergency relief to vulnerable communities and supporting sustainable community development programs. In the podcast, Joa provides his story and what led him to establishing both Insight Myanmar podcast and Better Burma. He also provides keen insight to issues that Myanmar is currently facing, how Better Burma is helping, and how Insight Myanmar podcast is raising awareness towards important causes. Currently, censorship is a major ongoing issue in Myanmar. According to the Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights, in the 2021 military coup in Myanmar, the junta imposed rolling nationwide internet blackouts and blocked access to social media and messaging platforms. This is no new strategy to oppressive societies and the junta has imposed targeted internet shutdowns in areas where it faces strong resistance from opposition groups. It is people like Joa and organizations like Better Burma that continue to stand for truth, justice, and freedom. I highly recommend listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast to hear the many diverse stories that provide hope and inspire those who stand for right action. Joa talks a little bit about this in the podcast, but I just wanted to recommend it because I have listened to it myself and listened to the inspiring stories provided by many. Without further ado, here is episode 14. Hi. Hi, Joa. Hi. Nice to talk to you. Uh, Likewise. Likewise. Thanks for joining. Oh, yeah, sure. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started if if sure. uh, if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So thank you uh, for so much for joining the show today and um, highlighting Myanmar and the work that your organization is doing. Um, so jumping right into things, can you share a little bit about your background and what led you on the path to your current work? And also explain a little bit about your organization. Sure. So I first went to Myanmar in 2003, and I went with an interest in meditation and wanting to uh, the the practice of of the passion of meditation that I was doing in the tradition of SN Goenka had originated, the lineage had originated from Myanmar. And so I went there wanting to discover kind of the origins and um, before the practice was exported into what would later become part of the greater mindfulness movement that's that's since swept western countries 
uh, and around the world. Um, and I was just pulled into the Buddhist culture and it, um, uh, whereas at that time in my life, meditation felt like something that I was doing. It was much more of an outlier then. It was much less conventional than it's become now, but it felt much more like um, I was going against the flow of normal society. And Myanmar, it felt like the meditation was going with the flow and that all of society was was supporting that. And so I had a great volition to want to get back to the country. And it was a military dictatorship at that time, uh, as, it, as it's sadly reverted back to now. Yeah. And uh, highly, uh, the, the government, not the people, but the, the military junta is highly xenophobic and suspicious of foreigners that are in the country. And so it was very hard to get in past being a tourist. But I was very fortunate that in my professional field, as I started to develop of uh, training, I was working in training and uh, a job became available through the U.S. Embassy where I was working at the American Center. I was working on a USAID contract before USAID really had a um, was, was able to be there. So it was all kind of covert at the time. And um, I was training. Um, I, I started out by training teachers. That was 2007. Oh, I started interesting. out Burmese teachers how to speak English. And uh, and then that developed into um, beyond just teachers, but training professionals from lots of walks of life. And Myanmar is a very diverse country. It's diverse religiously, culturally, ethnically. And so uh, I, both in Yangon as well as throughout the country, uh, I would convene training courses that would bring together people that had different content backgrounds, like, say, um, hygiene or HIV AIDS or working with street children or something like that. And but they didn't necessarily know how to share that information within their communities in any way than very teacher centered lecture style. And we would teach them and how to make it participatory and active and dynamic and draw an adult oh, learning great. theory uh, and which became kind of like, um, I guess you can call it like democracy with a small D. I mean, we never talked about politics. That was never my field, but yeah. it was more like in action of what it's like to work together, to respect different backgrounds, to to talk to people from and, and be curious about people who have different perspectives than you rather than be afraid or be suspicious, which the military and then before them, the British colonial period uh, always was able to rule by creating those divisions and suspicions. And so we were trying to, in a very small way, trying to do the opposite of that. Sure. Um, that that was from 07 to 11 that I was doing that work in Burma. Uh, the story continues on. I'll just pause there in case I don't want to talk ramshod through all of this. Now, this my, is my, so my, interesting. I, this is great. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So shall I continue or did you have any question? Uh, yeah, about no, that? feel free to continue. This is uh, very interesting, but I, I do have one question. Um, so so originally you went over there for meditation and then did you did you stay there and then you got the job doing the teaching or did you leave well, and then you returned? Right. So I went in 2003 for one month for meditation and I, I desperately wanted to get back. I was actually looking to leave my field and just teach English at a monastery or a school or something for free just to be in the country. That was how much I wanted to be there. Oh, wow. And I, I was in 2007, I was just really fortunate that my career path intersected with a job at the U.S. Embassy doing incredible work of training um, that it all came together. And so I, oh, I, wow. I went back in a professional, um, uh, a, uh, a professional capacity, but my personal interest was still meditation. And all of my, at that time, all of my free time was spent 
really doing one of two things. All I did when I was free and I worked very hard, it was, it was very, um, very inspiring what the students were, the challenges the students were facing and how hungry they were for, for information and for sure. um, opportunity that they didn't have anywhere else. And so everyone there ended up working far past what we intended just because it was, um, it was so rewarding. But in my free time, the only thing I did was I either studied Burmese or I, I meditated or or went to like monasteries or different places and learned about their history. And um, and so during that time, I was uh, it was such a Myanmar was such a close country. And yet it's th this foundation of mindfulness and meditation and, and Buddhist practice. And yet so little is known about it because of the military dictatorship and the closed nature of the society. And I didn't know a lot either. There, there wasn't anywhere I can turn to to get information. There was no real resources or background and no one, no guide who who had an overarching understanding. And so I was just very curious. And in all my free time, I just would would learn Burmese and then go to different sites and practice my Burmese by talking about Buddhism or history or st such and ended up finding a number of really interesting places like historical monasteries where important things had happened or important monks had lived or yeah. current places of practice. And so I started just to share those informally. And as meditators, foreign meditators would come into the country again, because there was so little information and so little available inadvertently, the notes that I was writing became kind of like the de facto guide, you know, kind of like the authoritative um, uh, guide for like where to go and what to do and everything else. And people I didn't know wow. were like, you know, that like friends of friends were meeting me and saying, Hey, you should check this out. These, these pages out. These are, these are really great. And I was like, well, I, I wrote them. My name wasn't on them. I, I was anonymous, but um, in any case, when my job at the embassy ended, I, I intended to just kind of hang out at monasteries and I was living even, I was living like in caves, like really rural and wow. centers and such. And I, in one of the places I was living, and I should also mention, this was when the internet really took off in the world um, and smartphones and everything. But because Myanmar was so closed, we didn't have access to any of that. So, I mean, my friends and I, we were reading about smartphones in like the New York Times, and we didn't really understand them, you know, because like it was changing culture. Yeah. But years into the cultural change, smartphones hadn't come to Myanmar, and we weren't um, for the most part, we weren't leaving. We were, most of us, there were visa problems at the time as well. So most of us were kind of stuck there. And so, um, so as this was all taking off, I was, uh, in one of the very remote monasteries I was staying without internet of any kind, I, uh, an important 20th century monk had lived there and some donor had gifted a scanner to this remote monastery. And it seemed very curious to, to me that, uh, that this rural monastery would have a scanner but I took advantage right. of that by deciding to scan the archival pictures of this monk uh, and share with meditators back in the U.S. just kind of for posterity. Yeah. As I scanned those pictures, I thought, well, maybe I'll make like a slideshow. And I ended up getting really involved. I went beyond making a slideshow. I spent about six weeks completely without internet, part of it living in a cave. And I made what amounted to be like a, a one-hour kind of amateur, amateur documentary. Um, and I... I didn't, and again, I didn't understand the internet. I, I, um, internet wasn't really available at all in Myanmar. Eventually, like after six months after making this, I put it on YouTube, but I didn't understand what YouTube was, even though this was like, you know, 2012 or something. Yeah. I, I thought it was kind of like a video storage site. So I didn't understand other people were actually going to be watching this video. I just thought, well, this, this will be a way to keep it safe so that if something happens to my computer, this yeah. file is safe. 
that video ended up going viral and it ended up being posted to like, it ended up actually, wow. actually it ended up judged as like a professional documentary and like, you know, kind of like, well, this part of it was good, but this storyline is kind of missed. And it's like, you know, dude, I was living in a cave when I made this, like <laughs> yeah. I was doing this for fun. Right. And that put me on the map um, uh, a bit more so. And I was asked to write a guidebook for meditators coming to the country. And oh, that was wow. right when the democratic transition process was starting um, in the, in the 2010s. And so uh, before it would have been really unsafe of me to be a white guy showing up at rural Burmese monasteries, asking a lot of questions. I mean, that would have been a great sure. way to get myself and other people in trouble, even, even though there were no political connections to it, it was just a very xenophobic and, and dangerous time um, with uh, the nature of the military uh, in power. But with the transition period, there were opportunities that had never existed before. So I spent about four years researching and writing this meditator guidebook project to just visiting hundreds of monasteries, pagodas, meditation centers, nunneries, and compiling this book that um, that would be kind of like a guide for kind of like what I wanted back in 2003 so that when meditators and practitioners came to the country, they would not that it'd be a comprehensive authoritative guide, but that it would at least indicate places of interest and the history behind that would would be interesting for them to visit. So that that brings it up to about 2017 or so. I'll pause there again. I'm going warp speed through all of this. And yeah, I, I hope I'm this is no, this is so interesting. What yeah. uh, what is the name of your book, your guide? Is it um, is it available for purchase? It's free. It was all a volunteer project. Um, oh, okay. Was, um, in the spirit of of Buddhist monasteries, it was meant to be something that was just um, just freely made and accessed. And it's it's called wow. the, the Golden Path or Shui Langale in in Burmese, and um, and that led to pilgrimages. So then I was then asked to start leading pilgrimages for those that wanted to be led instead of um, uh, instead of uh, uh, following themselves by a guidebook, which was difficult to do in Burma. And, um, and then eventually that led to the podcast. Uh, it was, it had, as I was starting to compile all this information, and I think this is true of anyone who's involved in Burma, any, any outsider, even Burmese who's, who's involved in Burma issues, whether it's history or politics or meditation or, uh, or human rights or whatever the field is, you, you realize there's so little known and you start to learn a little bit and you start to feel kind of happy and confident with yourself. Oh, I, I my head's above the water. I know more than a lot of people know about the subject. And then you learn, learn a little more and you start to feel a little more confident, like, wow, I'm, I'm really kind of the expert of this and I know what's going on. But then uh, eventually, like you start to realize that um, how little you do know and yeah. The idea, because Burmese history and society and everything is so enormously complex, and the nature of the closed country means so little research has been done that when you're put into any kind of authoritative role, it starts to, many people I've talked to across disciplines just start to feel very uncomfortable that they're in a spotlight that they don't really uh, feel is uh, they deserve to be in that they know that information that happened to me I was leading pilgrimages giving presentations writing these guidebooks and certainly I knew a lot more than most of the people reading or listening but the more I learned the more I started to realize um and I and to be clear I had never wanted to be an authority or or claim myself as the as an expert or anything right but even just like speaking out on this is how I understand this I would then learn something six months later that completely reversed my understanding. And I started to want to speak less and 
and go back to absorbing more. And the podcast was the perfect platform for that because during what amounted to 15 years in the country, I met really extraordinary people from all walks of life. Uh, and some of those people took a long time to meet, took a long time to engender the trust to hear their story and took a long time to have the context so that their story would make sense. And so the podcast became initially before the military coup in 2021, the podcast became a vehicle to be able to remove the spotlight from myself and be the questioner to create a, a an an a uh, an environment an intimate and um personal environment to be able to have a long form discussion with very special people and bring their stories and understanding mostly about buddhism and meditation at that time it changed after the coup uh, yeah. to a wider practitioner audience that wouldn't generally have access to hearing those kinds of stories. And this is the Better Burma podcast, right? I'm just saying the name for all the listeners out there. It's actually the Insight Myanmar podcast. Um, the the Better Burma nonprofit came about later. Oh, so it's a little- Oh, confusing. I apologize. I apologize. Okay. So yeah. the Insight, <laughs> Insight um, Myanmar. And can you- um, Explain a little bit how you actually started it. Well, I started Insight Myanmar um, when I was living in Yangon, and I was um, a lot of the a lot of the very interesting people involved in meditation, teachers, practitioners, etc. Would often pass through, and I'd see them, and we'd hang out, we'd have long conversations, and the podcast idea was like, well, let's start recording some of these conversations. Let's start mindfully bringing their voice to a podcast medium so that more people could have access to hearing their perspective, which was one that I felt like wasn't really coming out in the Buddhist world. And again, the nature of the closed country, I felt that the way that Burmese Buddhism was being understood and shared abroad was really missing a lot of my lived experience and the experiences of those I was bringing on to want to share that. And so um, and so that's where the podcast started. And it was really oriented mainly towards Buddhism and meditation, although it had a, a lot of um, uh, it was a very wide berth that we gave it. It would talk about um, uh, social issues and uh, and other things that intersected that. So it wasn't strictly just on the practice. But then after the military, so that there was a military coup in 2021 for just a brief primer of Burmese history. Uh, it was a, a brutal and oppressive military dictatorship from 1962 until, let's say, about 2012 um, was, was kind of when the transition started a bit loosely. And 2015, it was in full form. That was when the, the opposition party was voted into power and served from 2015 to 2020. And um, in 2020 the the again the opposition party which was now actually the party in, in charge this was Aung San Suu Kyi's party the mm -hmm. National League of Democracy or NLD um every election that they were in running against the military or the civilian um counterparts of the uh the the uh, the political party uh, associated with the military the NLD overwhelmingly won. Um, the the hatred and um, the disgust uh, and aversion that most of the people have towards the military in Myanmar is absolute, and it's been absolute. They it is the one common thing linking all the diversity in the country is how much people hate the military, and for very good reason. And once again, the military was absolutely trounced in these elections. And historically, the military 
likes to believe they're more popular than they are. So every time they lose in overwhelming fashion, they're always shocked that they lost and they end up playing political games or make accusations of voter fraud or something to be able to support their claims they should be in power. And that's what happened in 2021 after they were trounced yet again. They initiated a military coup on February 1st, 2021, and they arrested many of the elected Democratic leaders and they reestablished military rule. And for the last two and a half years, it's been an absolute nightmare scenario in Myanmar, as bad as things have ever been historically. Anyone you talk to in the country will tell you that this current period is the worst that anyone living can ever remember. Some people have even said going back to the carnage of World War II. Uh, So weeks following the military coup, I established the Better Burma nonprofit. Uh, It's a a, a registered um, 501c3 um, nonprofit in the U.S. that initially we just thought it would it would allow uh, the ability to be able to take donations that people who trusted me and trusted our platform would provide that we could then give over to humanitarian efforts in Burma that were very urgent at the time and still are very urgent. But at that moment, no one, I should say very few people had any kind of impression this was going to go years into the future and and still on. It seemed like something that was a very tense period of a few weeks or a few months. It's yeah. not in the news anymore, but it's just as bad and probably worse than it's ever been. It doesn't, just because we're not hearing about it doesn't mean it's not truly awful. So our Better Burma nonprofit was established to be able to uh, to to bring donations into and, and support a wide range of humanitarian missions for vulnerable populations, uh, COVID relief at the time, uh, medicine, food, shelter, IDP camps, refugee camps, uh, drinking water, medicine, um, uh, military defection campaigns to try to uh, people who are trying to encourage uh, military to not follow orders and leave their post, um, not fire, um, not use live ammunition on on civilians, etc. Those those kinds of things. Um, the at that time the 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 insight me in our podcast had been more of a side project up till then, and. Better Burma subsumed inside Myanmar into it. And so the podcast is one of the nonprofit missions. Uh, so that's a brief summary into where we are today. Okay. So you actually had established the podcast prior to the uh, Better Burma nonprofit. That's right. It, it was it was two years. It predated the nonprofit um, by two years. And it was more of a side. It wasn't official. It was just more of a side project. And once Better Burma was established, the podcast became one of the media, it became a media mission of it. We have Excellent. three missions now of the, the nonprofit. We have humanitarian media. We also have Burmese podcasts, Burmese media that are produced as well. And then we have uh, handicrafts as well. So those are the three handicrafts from vulnerable populations in Myanmar that are, are sent here and support artisan families and communities. So those are the three main missions of the nonprofit today. And how do you uh, reach out and get guests on the Insight Myanmar podcast? Is it um, do people contact you usually, or um, do you have a team there that you you reach out to, and that's how you get new guests, or how does that work? Um, it, it depends really guest by guest. Uh, many guests come through a lot of different ways. I would say that one of the most important things about Myanmar is is how much it's a trust based society, and because of the this this might be something that is 
harder to understand coming from developed countries like the US or, or other Western countries where systems work and you have a certain kind of trust and faith in the structures of society, even with their problems. But in Myanmar, everything is broken and it's been broken for a long time. And, and there's really very little trust in the government or their overall systems. And because of that, individual trust, it comes at a premium. And being able to vouch for people, being able to have personal connections, seeing people face to face in uh, in the absence of having systems of protocols you can trust, the human connection takes on much greater precedence. And so yeah. I think by having lived in Myanmar for the number of years I did and making the kinds of connections within the diverse communities that I did at the time, that um, that was one step in the process of having trusted relationships. And then post-coup, it's been even stronger in terms of the, the friendships and relationships and the networks that have been developed. And um, and I think really in, in absence of, one of the things is that in absence of having structures you can count on, your reputation becomes very important. And if you do right by people, that will be known. And if you do wrong by people, that absolutely. will also be known. And, That's cross-cultural, uh, definitely. Cross-cultural, yeah, absolutely. And in, um, but in Myanmar, I would say that uh, the way your reputation follows you is really defines you. It is really something hard to get away from in terms of how you show yourself to the world and how you show yourself to the connections that you've made. And so I think that one of the ways that we've been able to seek uh, some of the guests, and we've, we've had a number of guests who usually don't speak uh, about themselves or their lives that, and some of those guests have taken us literally years to get, literally years of patience, not pushing, but just asking, seeing what they're comfortable, presenting different options for them, and then eventually being able to have conditions come together that we we get a 90-minute interview with them and we get to bring their voice out. Um, but it all goes back to trust. It all goes back to personal connections, who can vouch for you, doing right by the last person, doing right by the next person, and uh, and seeing that the the real intention of what you're trying to do is legitimately to bring and authentically to bring these voices out to be heard rather sure. than some kind of personal ambition, personal ambition or um, aspiration of the program, um, of which, you know, if that was what you had, that would be shown through. Of course. And with, uh, with the censorship that goes on uh, in, in the country, have you received any types of uh, resistance or hate mail from anyone affiliated with the Junta at all? Um, not really, because the podcast is a, it's an English language oral medium. So I think it would, I think they have their hands pretty full of people that are trying to do much more harm to them that are in their own language and that are much more prescient dangers. And so I think that uh, we're a bit off the radar. I mean, our, our pages are banned in Myanmar, you know, like you, you can't access our, our, um, our websites, unless you have a VPN or some workaround. So we're, we're on the radar enough that we're one of the banned entities there. But, yeah. um, you know, we have, uh, our podcast has a listenership now of about 70,000 and one third of our listeners are in Myanmar. So, oh, wow. you know, it's a to me that in a time of internet blackouts, safety concerns, inter lack of internet access, an English language medium, that even with all those factors, that many Burmese are still in the country taking the time to want to tune in and hear from the guests that we have on. So you know, oh, I think that's, that's a great. test to the interest there. That's wonderful. And um, a few other questions that are uh, non-related to the podcast and your nonprofit. Who has been your greatest mentor throughout 
this whole process? Have you just basically, I mean, everything is, it sounds like you've just kind of come up with everything yourself. Did you have any friends along the way uh, while you were in country that, um, you know, gave you some good ideas? Oh, for sure. I mean, we've had lots of volunteer support. We've had lots of people with goodwill. Uh, our mission has been funded not by any government or or other or organization, but mainly by donors. We have. Um, I just did the tally a couple of days ago. We we have about twelve hundred donors that have given since the military coup, and um, several hundred who have given more than ten times. Um, so repeated donations. So oh, that kind. Of- Trust and integrity in our mission, you know, it just means the world to me that people believe in and support what we're doing, uh, as well as people who give in kind. We have so many volunteers who have, um, who who have uh, who have worked in various ways, you know, whether it's drawing art or doing editing or something on the internet or, you know, storytelling or something else. And so, um, uh, and so we've had, uh, yeah, so we've had a lot of people that have have come and lend a hand uh, through volunteer contributions or or even just saying like I hey there's this great guest you should have on your podcast or you know any number of ways I I wouldn't be able to count the number of people that have given or volunteered in some way that's allowed our mission to proceed and do the kind of work it's doing. Wonderful. And if uh, are any of our listeners out there are interested in volunteering with your organization, how are they able to do that or reach out to you? Yeah, we we love that. Um the uh the page they can go to is insightmyanmar.org. Um it's insight. Sometimes people hear it as inside, so insights like wisdom, I N S I G H T Myanmar um dot org. And you can just write us at info at insightmyanmar.org, or you can also go to our page and there's a link that says volunteer, and there's actually a volunteer form that can be filled out. Okay, wonderful. I'll be sure to include all the links to your social media sites uh, at the very bottom, so everyone will be able to easily access those. And um, what has been the greatest piece of advice that you have been given ever? Like in life or pertaining? uh, In life. In life, boy. um, I have to think about that. Uh, I think... um, I don't know why this is coming to my mind now. I mean, it's it's quite profound, but it's just the one that pops up. But there's a, uh, a an Australian guy I'm good friends with who's been in Myanmar much longer than I have, 40 years or so, half as a monk and half as a layperson. And, you know, there's there's book upon book, thousands of pages, distilling Buddhist wisdom and meditation and analyzing all the different suttas and their meaning and their commentaries and what's really the right way and this, that, and the other. And whenever I talk to him about this, and this is a very learned person, this is somebody fluent in Burmese, fluent in Pali, and has met, wow. uh, has been closely associated with some of the greatest monks, um, uh, just a litany who's who of some of the greatest monks in, in Burmese history. And when I talk to him about this, he just always says, you know, there's, um, it's all in the five precepts, you know, there's five basic Buddhist precepts of morality. It's not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to have intoxicants or not to commit sexual misconduct. And he just always comes back to this. And it's very simple. It's something every Buddhist knows, but the profundity, which with the the profundity and yet the simplicity with which he will talk about the power of these precepts and the power of ethical living in the face of all these complex philosophies and methods and techniques and just boils it down to this being the central thing. If you live your life by this, things will be okay. 
uh, if you if you just adhere to these things, you're going to get by on some level and you're going to have a measure of happiness and stability. And even though these precepts are not foreign to me and something I've known for decades, yeah. the way in which he would speak around them and uh, express a certain faith and confidence in them uh, is very inspiring to me. And I think that's that would be something I would come back to. I love that. Uh, what has been one of the greatest challenges that you've encountered um, doing the work that you've been doing with the nonprofit? Have you encountered any challenges at all? Because it seems like everything has kind of just um, fallen into place throughout your journey. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, there's been ups and downs and bumpy roads. Uh, I would say two main challenges. Um one, of course, is funding. You know, we're still, despite the work we've done, we're still not sustainable. We're, we're still having to, like many organizations, having to to fight and make sure we keep our heads above the water and, you know, just make sure that we'll last another month or another year. And uh, and that's um, that's that's just a persistent challenge is just looking at ways that we could be sustainable in the work we're doing, the support we're providing, the voices we're, we're, we're giving. Um, that's probably the main challenge. Um, the, the other challenge that comes with that, that's been more post-coup is just the trauma, you know, just, um, I've, I've never in my life found myself in a situation, nor did I ever think I would be in a situation where I would be an active player yielding all the tools that I have, uh, from my humble little platform against a professional and brutal military dictatorship half a world away, yeah. you know, and the, 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 um, um, just to be an actor in that unfolding drama, even though I'm personally not in a place of, of danger and where my own physical safety is threatened, the first several months of the coup, first year, really, the level of trauma was something I didn't know how to deal with. I, I, I sometimes had a bit of cognitive dissonance where I, I was living so much in the terrors of Myanmar that I would go outside in America and I would kind of forget where I was. I would kind of be seeing the, the horrors that I'd been hearing about and, and seeing on pictures and videos I would see in my neighborhood and, and realize that I wasn't, you know, that that wasn't actually in front of me, that I was just kind of, um, I was still living that and just being able to relate to people in America uh, talking about their favorite TV show or what they want to have for dinner or where they went on vacation. Okay. Um, when I had friends that were like literally in hiding in safe houses in the jungle, people I hadn't heard from for months. I didn't know if they were dead or in prison or, or whatever else. And to be able to, to be present in my friends and family's lives in America, attending to their mundane matters right. uh, and not minimizing those while also um, playing a role in whatever our nonprofit and personally could play in trying to save lives um, that were uh, were being impacted by a a very despotic and, and evil and tyrannical regime. Um, that was a balance that that I I I had no background in knowing how to handle. Yeah. But and it took I would say it took a good year to be able to just normalize it to just like be able to talk about what I'm going to have for dinner and what you thought of this TV show and then turn around and go to the computer and, and, and talk to someone or work on something that was, you know, um, uh, just another world and be able to compartmentalize that. Yeah. I'm sure your meditation practice helps with that. I'm, I'm keeping that balance. 
Hugely. I mean, the biggest thing the meditation practice did to me was that it, um, uh, I would have a lot of friends who would talk about how depressed they would get about the overall situation and how things were going and, you know, what wasn't working. And I would just tell them that didn't phase me at all because through meditation, I had learned that, uh, any energy or emotion I expend on an issue that I don't have control over, uh, is lost energy. You know, why do it? And that's something yeah. intellectually we all know, but it took hundreds and thousands of hours of meditation for me to actually understand the wisdom of it. Um, if something is in front of my desk, if 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 there is a, a crisis that I can actually play a role or our organization can play a role in helping people, of course, it's tense. It's all hands on deck. It's doing everything we can. But if there's a situation that's really bad and really crappy, but it's not something that I or the organization can do anything about, it's not that I'm cold or uncaring. It's just that why would I want to expend the emotion in attending to that when I'm losing that energy on something I could be doing that's productive? And so that's been really the biggest takeaway. It sounds like you're helping a lot of people. Well, well, thank you. And I thank you for taking the time to bring this issue to light uh, for people to be aware of what's happening in Myanmar. And I, I just want to give my gratitude for what the people of Myanmar have done for me personally. You know, this is a repos this is a repository of a spiritual practice that is the depths of compassion and uh, gratitude and selflessness and, and generosity and the lessons of being within that community and what's what they have exported, what they have given to foreigners like me, how they have welcomed us into their homes and their lives, even among hardships. It's something that I've never encountered anywhere in the world. And so anything that we can do to stand for their time of need and support them as they're going through this is, uh, is just a small thing of really what um, what they have given over the years to me personally and to so many others that come. So I just, I really, one of the things I really want to emphasize in this story is that this is not the way it's often framed is this is a poor, poor country, a, a collapsed society, a broken country that yeah. deserves pity and, and support. And, and that's not true. This is a reciprocal relationship. This is a, uh, uh, a society that has gone through a very hard time based on very terrible leadership and a lack of international support. But in spite of those difficulties, they have they have given so tremendously in perhaps non-material ways, perhaps in the ways of these spiritual teachings and others that so many have been inspired by their time in Myanmar. And I think that's a huge part of the story that people should recognize so that it changed the changes the dynamic of the way that it's often viewed. Absolutely. Well said. And I think also, um, given the circumstances there and what you mentioned earlier about uh, there not being a lot of media coverage on uh, the events that are occurring there, um, a platform such as yours is a huge help to uh, advocate and uh, get the word out to other people about, um, you know, about the great things that the people who do live there are doing and um, and highlight their successes uh, as well as, you know, the challenges they're facing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, again, thank you so much. And uh, I'll be sure to include all of the links, everyone listening out there, if you would like to volunteer or um, contribute in any way, um, 
you can click the links below. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me on and for shining the light on this. And I definitely encourage your listeners at minimum to check out some of our podcasts. We have a very diverse range of speakers that would, uh, I think I think people can find their interest that matches with them. And there are just some very valuable and inspiring stories from people that are going through a very difficult time and doing it with a sense of resilience and selflessness that is just awe-inspiring to hear. So I just couldn't say enough about them. Absolutely. All the best to you, Joa. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for taking this time. Bye. Bye.